Welcome to the latest episode of the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast, the podcast where we discuss and examine the 75 greatest Marvel stories as chosen by Marvel readers and published by Marvel Comics itself. The countdown continues every Wednesday until June 1st, 2016. Joining us this week, we actually have two co-hosts, one of whom will be somewhat familiar to those who've been listening for a while, and one of whom is making her first appearance on the podcast. So welcome, Alan and Emily Middleton. Hello. Hi there. Hello. So thanks for coming on board. Glad to be here. They saved Emily for the really good stories. I understand. I see what's going on here. (laughs) Well, you know, there's only so much we can do, and sadly we missed you in the, the story where Doctor Doom actually showed up two weeks ago. This countdown has been far too doom light, but that's a discussion for another day. It is. So the discussion for today is about Captain America the Winter Soldier, which is officially listed in the countdown publication as issues 1 through 14 of the 2004 or volume 5 series of Captain America, although as we'll get to in the synopsis, issue 10 has little or nothing to do with the other 13 issues in the set. All were written by Ed Brubaker. Pencils were by Steve Epting, Michael Lark, John Paul Leon, and Lee Weeks. Inks were by Steve Epting, Michael Lark, John Paul Leon, Mike Perkins, Lee Weeks, and Jesse Delperdang. Colored by Frank Darmada. Lettered by Randy Gentle and Chris Eliopoulos. Edited by Andy Schmidt, Nicole Wiley, Molly Laser, and Aubrey Sitterson as assistant editors. Tom Brevoort as the main editor. And Joe Casada as the editor-in-chief. The cover dates range from January 2005 to April 2006, and the release dates range from November 17th, 2004 to February 1st, 2006, and this made it to position 9 in the 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown. Technical details out of the way, this, as we said, is Captain America Winter Soldier. Those of you who pay attention to movie titles can guess (laughs) at least part of the significance of this story. The return of... Bucky! Yet without... Ed Brubaker's concept behind this story, we would not have had the return of Bucky, which has been probably the, I would say, the single most important development in Captain America comics in the last 12 years. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, including Cap's death. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I would say this is probably more significant than that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's actually not too far in the future after this, but <laughs> if Bucky had not returned, I don't see them going that direction. Right. I imagine... The return of Bucky may have always been on the table, but my theory is they would have had to have been blown away by the pitch. And, you know, I could see this pitch doing that. Yeah, it's a know great that, story concept. Yeah, this being the one where they finally bit and said, okay, we'll take a shot. Yeah. So, just out of curiosity, have you two heard the story of how Ed Brubaker came up with the idea? No. no. When he was a child, and this is a story he's related on Word Balloon many times, so I highly recommend that <laughs> podcast on. Pretty much every opportunity. But when he was a kid, he started collecting comics and he read Captain America 100 and read these recaps about how Bucky died. And for years, he was looking for Captain America issue 99 because he figured that had to be the death of Bucky because that had such an impact on Cap in issue 100. And it wasn't until he was older and found out that, first of all, there was no Captain America 99 because he and Iron Man were sharing Tales of Suspense. And when that book split, Captain America kept the Tales of Suspense numbering and Iron Man got a new number one after a one-shot team-up issue with a Submariner. And not only that, but he also learned that Bucky only died in flashback. And that angered and irritated him. He said, well, that's not real. That's not a story that we saw. (laughs) That was a cheap knockout. That's just wrong. So therefore, Bucky had to come back because he didn't get to die fairly. Hmm. I like that. That, That's an interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. (laughs) And for those of you who are wondering how to spot Ed Brubaker, watch the Winter Soldier movie. There's a scene from the point of view of a character where he's on a table in, undergoing a medical procedure, Ed Brubaker is one of the doctors in that scene. <laughs> the Marvel Cinematic Universe has had a, a nice history of allowing some of the writers to appear as uh, mm-hmm. minor minor characters in the, in the movies. They have. I think going overboard on that was one of the problems with the original Daredevil film. Yeah. Mm, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking of poor JMS trying to lift up the, the hammer. Yep. <laughs> and Stan Lee mm-hmm. driving the truck. <laughs> Mind you, Stan Lee's been showing up in Marvel production since he served on the jury in the trial of the Incredible Hulk. <laughs> but anyway, back to Captain America. So shall we run through a quick synopsis of the mm-hmm. series? Let's. All right. So the first story arc is this, might as well break it down into a couple story arcs so we don't spend 20 minutes just going through issue by issue. The first one is called Out of Time, which has a, a couple of elements to it. One of them is that Captain America 
you know, we see him trying to cope with this whole fish out of water, man out of time concept that is such the core of his character, right? He was born and raised before World War II, fought in World War II, and one of the nice things about his origin with Marvel's sliding timeline and the way they prevent the characters from aging by saying, well, no, the first issue of Fantastic Four was 12 years ago, whenever that happened, that being out of time and out of place becomes more and more significant as the world evolves and changes as real time goes by. So not only is he trying to cope with that, but in the first issue, his longtime adversary, the Red Skull, gets murdered. And he is one of the initial suspects because, let's face it, he's got motive and means. If, if you want to talk about a significance of a story arc, even before we get to the real significance, the quote-unquote death of the Red Skull, that would count as a significant moment. Yeah, that's quite the way to launch a new series. Mm-hmm. Kill off the primary adversary. Yeah, and that's your pre-credit bit. Right, that's right. Yeah, that comes in. We're introduced to Alexander Lukin, who's a new player on the table who is aware of the Cosmic Cube and trying to obtain its power for himself, which is the motivation behind the murder of the Red Skull. He gets both the Cosmic Cube and the ability to charge it up using the Red Skull's technology. Meanwhile, there's rumors of a character running around called the Winter Soldier, who's been almost like a Soviet secret weapon for the past several decades. And as the story arc evolves... We learn a little bit more about the Winter Soldier, and there's rumors that it may in fact be Bucky Barnes, who is, you know, Cap's long-dead partner, rather than just falling off a random train into a crevasse as in Captain America the First Avenger. The comic book story behind his death was that he and Cap were on a missile that was being shot at North America, and Bucky was, you know, riding on board a little bit longer than Cap to make sure that this did not reach the States. Cap had it disabled enough that it would have missed the target, but Bucky didn't get off the missile in time. When it blew up, he was you know, lost and presumed dead. Because let's face it, if you're sitting on the side of a nuclear warhead when it goes off, you're probably not going to make it. <laughs> and if you suspend your disbelief long enough to say, you know, well, Cap could have been frozen all those years, it's not that crazy to think maybe he wasn't the only one who could have been. So there's even a little mm-hmm. bit of internal logic into the into the story that I liked. There is, although a big part of why Cap survived all those years is the super soldier serum in his veins, right. which was never a part of Bucky. True. But as we will learn, and I don't think it's a spoiler to say that, yeah, the Winter Soldier is Bucky, <laughs> given everything else we've said so far. <laughs> it turns out that, yeah, Bucky did get frozen, but not for as long, and required much more involved resuscitation techniques to bring him back. So he was actually found by the Russians within about 24 to 48 hours. They had a ship in the area. But as this is evolving, we see a few more things. We see that Crossbones has actually found Sin, the Red Skull's daughter, and is bringing her back to deprogram the brainwashing that she's gone through. The Winter Soldier is responsible for a massive bombing in Philadelphia, a major terrorist attack, and has actually blamed Nomad, the previous Captain America substitute for it. And as this is building, you know, Cap is the one member of the core cast, the others being Nick Fury and Sharon Carter, who outright refuses to believe that Bucky is the Winter Soldier because he would never do this. And as we evolve through the second story arc and some of the actual Russian documentation about the Winter Soldier makes its way into Cap's hands as a result of Lucan's subconscious use of the Cosmic Cube, or is it the use of the Cosmic Cube by the subconscious within Mm -hmm. Lucan? You know, Cap gets this documentation and finds out that, yeah, it is Bucky. But he also sees enough of the Bucky that he knows in there to buy it. Because, yeah, he's been deprogrammed, but they were having a hard time keeping the programming held in place. Bucky kept fighting it and, you know, trying to revert and go back to the person he was. So they ended up putting him in suspended animation after every mission and brainwashing him fresh or reprogramming him every time they thought him out. Which also explains why Bucky has survived since World War II and appears to be in, you know, say his mid to late or mid 20s to early 30s somewhere in that range they're deliberately vague on how much he's actually aged but he just spent so much time in suspended animation that it kind of works out but this keeps building they go after the winter soldier cap's goal is not to kill him as others are saying he might have to do but to save him and ultimately that is what happens in a confrontation with lucan who's got the mind of the red skull buried within him so johann schmidt is alive in a fashion certainly not well but he is now, you know, trapped within the mind of Alexander Lucan, and he's pulling some strings and causing Lucan to do things that Lucan wouldn't normally do. But yeah, as they get out there, in the final confrontation, 
Cap manages to get his hands on the Cosmic Cube and uses it to force Bucky to remember who he was. And not necessarily remove all the programming, we don't get confirmation of that in this story, but to bring back the personality that was there before he was programmed. And as we said, issue 10 is a bit of an interlude. That's actually House of M tie-in. So for those who are listening, when John and Wilson and I were discussing House <laughs> of M, we couldn't remember what it was. It's basically the history of Captain America, the mission where Bucky died went a little bit differently. Bucky and Cap made it out after successfully completing the mission. Cap went through a you know, major political career, became an astronaut. The McCarthy trials, instead of being about communism, were about mutants. And it led to Captain America aging normally into the geriatric gentleman that we meet in House of M who gets left behind. So there's a whole story that Bucky is a major part of that takes place entirely in an alternate timeline and has no bearing on the other 13 issues in this 14-issue set. So I don't know that we need to say anything more about that particular issue. I, I don't think that's why this made the list. But I think it's interesting that they included a Bucky-centric Cap story. So yeah. Thematically. That was, yeah, thematically. I thought that, was, that, that, that sounds like an interesting parallel to what was happening in the mainstream of the book. Yeah, if you're going to jump onto that crossover, that's probably the best story you could possibly tell. Mm-hmm. But it is, as we said, set in an alternate universe and has, if you're reading these, you can skip issue 10 and not really notice that you've skipped anything. Yeah, the the collection does not include it. Yeah. The Winter Soldier Ultimate Collection paperback that we read does not include issue 10. Okay. So have you guys checked out any of these issues on Marvel Digital Unlimited? No. No. Mm-mm. Yeah, we do not have any yeah. of the uh, comic subscription anything. Okay. I asked because actually they are doing something different with this. Issues 8 and up were the first issues to include sound effects. Hmm. Interesting. So it's not like the, the wham, bang, not the ones that get lettered in, but when you're reading a scene that takes place on a submarine, if you've got your, your headphones on and the speakers on, you'll hear just little background noises like you would hear mm-hmm. if you were on a sub. Hmm. Or you know, as the setting changes, it's just atmospheric sound Interesting. that fits the setting of the current scene. I like that concept more than the motion comics. Motion comics have always weirded mm-hmm. me out, but that I, actually sounds like a yep. an interesting idea. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Motion comics are a weird, uncanny valley because they're not as good as animation and they're not as good as comic books. But I like I like this. I don't know what we'd mm-hmm. call it. This en- enhanced digital experience that 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 you're describing, Blaine. Yeah, I I think that's the well. They actually call it as enhanced as well. I don't remember the of- official marketing term for it, but that was nice, and it's. As we said, it's nicer than the motion comics. I'd agree with mm-hmm. that. The only motion comic I was satisfied with, really, was Spider-Woman. And I think that's largely because that was the one I, I've encountered that was designed as a motion comic when it was being created, mm-hmm. rather than being adapted after the fact. Yeah. I, I imagine that would make all the difference. It, it makes enough difference that I was actually able to finish it. The rest I haven't been able to get through <laughs> yeah. more than the first chapter. <laughs> so, But yeah, I would say that's the best of the bunch so far, but... And moving off motion comics and getting back to Winter Soldier. <laughs> yeah, I think that's really the significance. This reintroduces Bucky as the Winter Soldier and sets the stage for the plan that Ed Brubaker had in mind. Mm-hmm. Following the death of Captain America at the end of the Civil War, Bucky became Captain America and actually held that mantle longer than Brubaker originally planned. Right. He only planned it for a certain amount of time, but so many of the other Marvel writers and creators were so excited by the idea and wanted to play with it that he said, okay, I'm going to give them time to tell those stories that they're excited by, and they let it run a little longer. It's always tricky to ask a question about comics with the word now in it, because the now always changes, but do you know what the current <laughs> stat- status of Bucky is now in whatever current version of Marvel <laughs> is extant as we speak? All new, all different. Yeah, I am behind on. Actually, every title I read right now. <laughs> uh, those who know me know how significant it is when I say I'm two issues behind on reading Daredevil. Oh, right now. whoa, dude. <laughs> yeah. Soon to be three, because there's another one that... Oh, no. <laughs> possibly even shipped this week, so I might be three behind. <laughs> but For I, shame. But I like that they... you know, If, if, if you're going to do something as significant as bring Bucky back, keeping him back, I think, is an important second mm-hmm. act yeah. bringing him back just to kill him that would be a cheat and if you're going to do something yeah. this major i mean this up until up until this story bucky was one of the very <laughs> few unviolable deaths in comics and yeah. if you're we're just going to bring him back just to tell the story where well you know he didn't die on on page before 
but gosh darn it, now I'm going to bring him back to kill him on panel. We're going to kill him right this time. That would be a disaster and a publicity stunt of epic proportions. But that's not what be. this was. No, yeah, it's the last I heard of Bucky following original sin. He was responsible for, we'll call it very undercover work. <laughs> kind sure. of nasty work that Nick Fury was doing on the side. I wasn't reading it, but I do know that he had his own title right, right up until mm-hmm. a bunch of titles shut down and Secret Wars and then came back. Right, right. So I don't know his post-Secret Wars status quo. I've only read the first four issues of that series. Yeah, but my yeah, but you know, my impression was, was up through 2014 and 15 that he was still an, an active, significant part of the Marvel U. Yep, it's, he was an active character in his own title up to Secret Wars, and a version of... Bucky Winter Soldier was a prominent character in the Secret Wars Civil War miniseries, or at least in the first issue that I've read. I don't know where he is beyond that, but I can't imagine that they'd kill him off at this no, point. Oh, no. No, no. 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 He might not be front and center, but he's he's out there somewhere. And and I, you know, and, and the longer he remains a vital character, the more important this series becomes, you know, mm-hmm. re- retroactively. Well, yeah, because one thing that Marvel has lacked for years is the legacy character, mm-hmm. mm. right? Mm-hmm. Especially in comparison to DC. And the first Marvel legacy characters that they had, you could make cases for, you know, the Black Widow or the Vision, but those are not really mm, legacy yeah. characters so much as totally unrelated characters who borrowed the name of a Golden Age hero. Yeah. The first proper legacy character would be the Human Torch, but even then there was no connection in their origins and histories. Yeah, that's a stretch as well, yeah. It is. I would say that the first proper legacy character, where character A inherits the powers and abilities of of the existing character, is probably the Scott Lang Ant-Man, and that showed up in the late 70s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And compare that to DC, which has, well, again, their original legacy characters of your Barry Allen and your, your Hal Jordan as the Flash and the Green Lantern, those were more like the Black Widow Vision legacy characters, particularly in Hal Jordan's case. Yeah. Where it, right. you know, the, the Flash, at least, he named himself after Jay Garrick's character be, that he read about in comics as a kid because of the similarities <laughs> in their powers. So I would say Guy Gardner might have been the first proper DC legacy where, you know, here's the alternate Green Lantern and then we get to Jon Stewart and that sort of thing. But right. that's something that DC has been building on for decades. Right. Multiple Flashes and multiple Blue Beetles and mm-hmm. et cetera. Yep. And even with the Green Lantern Corps, that ring has been passed right. down. Right. So, you know, they... They've had a much bigger turn of that than Marvel has, although Marvel seems to be coming around with that in the past few years. With I would say, if anything, the Bucky Captain America was the first stage in that. And then they had the Wolverines, mm-hmm. and now mm-hmm. we've got a couple Wolverines running around. We've got a new Thor. Right. Mm-hmm. We've got Sam Wilson as Captain America. So there have been a couple temporary Captain Americas here, but I think Bucky was the first one to use the name Captain America at the same time as Steve Rogers did, after Steve Rogers got better from being dead. Comic books. <laughs> yep. Exactly. Exactly. He got better. One of the things I was thinking as I was reading through this is that it's a great story, but it's a great story that is made up of some really impressive individual issues as well. And and you don't yes. always get that. You know, sometimes you get the six part story that just happens to be cut into sixths <laughs> because that's the monthly yeah. schedule. But it seems like Brew Baker really thought out a couple of these in 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 particular that individual issues that that uh, that we thought really stood out. Yeah, and I also like the way he structured the story to give his his artists time to do the complete story arc themselves. Mm. We mentioned there's a few artists involved in this. The only rare times when other artists got involved with Steve Epting during it, in that case it was Michael Lark. Michael Lark was chosen because he and Epting have very compatible styles and they could step up and mm-hmm. share an issue. But issue seven is the one by John Paul Leon, which is really that a little sidetrack into what No Man had been doing prior to when we see him in this story arc. That story, not only does it inform the story that we're telling, but because it's sort of a one-off side story, it doesn't feel as jarring when you replace the artist and give Steve Epting time to stay on schedule. Because that bought a month on the schedule that Steve Epting didn't have to produce the issue for. Yeah. It was somebody else doing that. And that's another reason that Ed Brubaker decided to participate in House of M, because it wasn't required at the time they're saying who's in, who's out, and if you wanted to be in, you had to pitch. So the Marvel editorial knew, no, you have a story that matters to House of M and is going to make use of House of M, 
and you're not just going, hey, I I want the the sales boost I'm going to get from being part of House of M, so I'm going to throw something at you. Right. That issue with Lee Weeks coming in for the art also gave Epting a month. So Epting basically had 14 months to make 12 stories. Yeah. Or 12 issues, which it's not something that we necessarily see, especially in this era of Marvel. Right. This is coming not long after Ultimates, where buyers had shown Marvel that they are willing to wait for late issues if it keeps the, a good creative team together, as long as the, the stories are good enough. Yeah. And the story is good enough. And as you said, it's, it is a good read. A number of us will point to Hulk 181 on this list as a comic that's not a terribly good comic, but it's here because it right. introduced Wolverine, who has become so huge. That's why. And even though it wasn't Wolverine's first appearance, as we described, it was his first significant appearance. This is beyond the, you know, two panels of go up north when some of these panels were even drawn from outside of the building <laughs> to the final panel of Wolverine jumping up from behind a rock going, yeah, now I'm here. That is on the greatest list because that's what is started to establish who Wolverine was for the first time. Yeah. If Wolverine had not been put on the Uncanny X-Men and disappeared after that issue, exactly. I don't think there's a chance that Incredible Hulk 181 exactly. would have made this list. Exactly. Here, they could have killed off Bucky or made the Winter Soldier not Bucky. And you could still make a case for putting these issues right. in a lower position on the list right. just because they are so well done. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I can't speak to issue 10 because we didn't have it to read. But issue 7, in my mind, is a perfect fill-in. That it, mm. it expands on the story and explains backstory. And I, I really love the art change because it is so different. I just refer to issue 7 as the saddest 22 pages in comic history. Because that, that issue killed me. Anything that has to do with mm -hmm. mental instability and agency and capability and not understanding what's going on around you and having a skewed perception of reality is... It's intense. It's really intense. And it, it, mm -hmm. it gets to me. That is, that's my jam. <laughs> so, of course, yeah. I love this whole, this whole story because the whole story thematically deals with that que those questions of agency and whether or not Jack or Bucky, are aware of their actions, whether they should be held accountable for their actions. It's just really sad and really, really good, really very poignant. In terms of issues sort of standing out, you know, um, among, the, among the collection, to me, I thought issue 11 was an interesting one because we're, in essence, basically just reading Bucky's file. That's almost mm -hmm. the whole issue is reading, you know, reading a file. And it's a fascinating issue and sad and emotional and intense. And I just, I like the way that, that Brubaker is able to, you know, again, craft these individual elements, these individual chapters mm -hmm. of such a high quality as a part of this longer story. That's also of a very high quality. Yeah. And it's, as you said, crafting those chapters is really what it boils down to. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you've talked about other ones where it seems like, you know, oh, we're going to publish this as a six-issue series, so that's a 132-page story, and we just break it every 22 pages. Right. With this, each issue is structured to have a complete beginning, middle, and end. Yes. Right. So they, they really do feel like chapters. They are clearly chapters of something much bigger and even bigger than these 14 or 13 issues, right? Mm -hmm. This is part of Brubaker's long-term plan, and he was on this character for years and deservedly so. Yeah. I feel like this story really doesn't have a great handle on continuity in the the best kind of way because mm -hmm. a ton of characters are included in this story, but at least for me, it never felt forced. The story didn't get bogged down in exposition or name dropping, even though there is a ton of explanation. Like issues three and four are basically just straight exposition, at least for me, mm -hmm. because I didn't know anything about the other Captain Americas whatsoever. So mm, there's mm -hmm. reference to the spirit of 76 and the Patriot. And then there's the 50s art teacher, Steve Rogers with the second Bucky. I didn't know any of this stuff going into the book, mm -hmm. but it, it, it explained all of that history in a way that was still really engaging. And I, I really started to care about these characters. So they explained, oh, spirit of 76 and Patriot, and they followed up after me. And then like two pages later, you see their graves defaced. And I was like, oh my gosh, I feel horrible. I didn't know who these people were three pages ago, but yeah. but it was able to explain who they are and make me care about them in a very 
succinct it, way. Right, but it makes you understand mm-hmm. that Steve considers these part of his legacy. Mm-hmm. And what's happening to them and their memories is happening to him. Mm-hmm. So he's taking that personally. And because of that relationship, you're understanding that as well. Exactly. Yeah. Brubaker knows how to walk that very fine line where he can write a story that builds on 65 years of history. Mm. That could also be the first Captain America story you ever read. Yeah, absolutely. That's a a skill. That is a skill. Like, honestly, I think that I would would give this to anyone who's come up to me and said, oh, yeah, Captain America is such a bland, boring, stock character. Like, he has no depth. He has no pathos. He's just like some Boy (laughs) Scout. I would just give them this. Just be like, here. This is this is who Captain America is. This is who Steve Rogers is. This is who the legacy of Captain America is. Captain America actually yeah. does work pretty well as a legacy character. And I like Brubaker mm-hmm. sort of building that in, that he already was, quote unquote, a legacy character. And then sort of mm-hmm. preparing the way for Bucky to take up that mantle, as frankly, only Bucky really could. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the way he did it, I mean, to go beyond the end of these issues, when Cap died in issue 25, and some of us kind of foresaw that Bucky was going to be Captain America. At the end of tw- issue 25, I was opposed to the idea because Bucky, as he was at the end of issue 25, would not have made a good Captain America. They spent another, what, six or seven issues developing Bucky, where she was saying, not me, not me, not me, showing the choices that are going to be in front of him, making him realize, no, it has to be me, and this is why, and what changes he had to bring about within himself to make that happen. Mm-hmm. Right, that is past the end. But it's still the right. quality of storytelling that starts here. It was all one big package. This is one of those cases like the New Mutants or like the John Byrne Fantastic Four where we could debate whether or not they should have taken a single story and put it on this list or whether right. they should have said, no, we'll take his run <laughs> yeah. and put it on this list. Because you could make a case for all the Cap stories that Brew Baker wrote going on the list. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Okay. And because as you're saying, they are of a piece. Yeah. <laughs> this is the... This is the first third of the story, and it is right. it is great, but it is not all of it. No. Yeah, I think it was in the, the low 30s when Bucky finally takes over the mantle mm-hmm. of Captain America, right. and this end was 14. Mm-hmm. Cap's death following, secret, or following Civil War is issue 25. Right. right. There's a lot to go through, and yeah, it is just very well done. And I, and I, I think Brubaker's skills at sort of the crime and the spy – story, the, the war story, there's sort of a procedural aspect to that that I think is in his skill set really strongly, as opposed to sort of a maybe a more traditional comic type of story. So I think it was a real good fit of story and writer. Oh, yeah. I mean, for, for some people, they don't think of Ed Brubaker as the guy who did Captain America. They think of Ed Brubaker as the co-creator of the criminal series of miniseries. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, then. And, and, and to me, he's half of Gotham Central. Mm-hmm. You know, with with uh, with Greg Rucka. Yeah, it is very much in his wheelhouse, mm-hmm. and that's a lot of the. I mean, we've talked about the impact that this had on the stories themselves. We see the impact in the Marvel Cinematic Universe because, hey, Captain America: Winter Soldier was the second film which took enough from this. Oh, definitely. Captain America: Winter Soldier actually has a lot of the same themes and key plot points as this does, as opposed to say Avengers: Age of Ultron, right. which borrowed the name only. Yeah, right. And this, uh, you know, again, this this served as as the basis for really one of the best received Marvel movies. Yeah, but ninety percent on Rotten Tomatoes or something like that. You know, very highly highly thought of. It did uh, about a hundred million more box office than the first Cap did. And the first first the first one did about a hundred and fifty million. This one did two hundred and fifty million. That's a huge increase yeah. from movie one to movie two. It also changed the Hollywood release schedule. Because mm. Captain America Winter Soldier came out in April when everybody was right. telling them, you are insane to release a tentpole in April. Tentpoles come out in the May to July range or in November. Mm-hmm. Tentpoles being the big budget movies that the studios are really invested in. They're usually big flashy special effects films. But Marvel said, no, we think we've got appointment films now. We think if we release a film with the Marvel brand in the Marvel Cinematic Universe... The people will come. Yeah. Doesn't matter what time of year we release it. and. <laughs> They demonstrated that that was true. So it's if you have actually look at the the tentpole release schedule for the major studios, they are much more uniformly spread throughout the year from Winter Soldier forward. Right. It's always time for a good movie, as as Deadpool found out. Yeah. You can you can grab a a 
quick hundred million on a weekend, just about any uh any month of the year, it seems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, his first weekend did 150. Yep. And considering industry projections were in the 60 to 70 million range. Mm-hmm. Um, so how did you two first get introduced to this story? The movie. Yeah. Uh, this came out for me when I, I was out of comics when this was coming out. I got back into comics 2006, 2007. But this was one of the stories I quickly heard about. And so one, mm-hmm. of, the, one of the early trades that I picked up in that return to comics. And it certainly did not disappoint. No. Yeah. For me, I got there a little bit sooner. Not quite. I actually got promoted and a raise at work right when the first issues of Civil War were being solicited. So I decided to go all in on that event and for the first time ever read not just the entire event, but all the tie-ins, all the miniseries, not just the main series. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, every time Git Corp released one of those DVD ROMs, I was buying them. Mm-hmm. Because right. in terms of bang for your buck, you can't beat that. You are talking I mean, my language, <laughs> Blaine. You're talking my language. Yeah, I was going to say, for those who know Professor Allen, you know how much he respects being able to get a good comic for a quarter. <laughs> In this, you know, I was getting every issue of Captain America or Spider-Man or whatever the DVD was for about a dime. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so, often less, because it was typically 50 bucks for the DVD wrong, right. and typically more than 500 issues included. <laughs> Crazy. So, I... Civil War hit. I read those Civil War tie-in issues, which were Bucky-centric. Loved them, and then made it a priority to pull out that DVD-ROM and start reading from the beginning of Ed Brubaker's run. You know, it's 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 tricky because the nature of previews and all of that. You know, I suppose you know I'm I'm coming to this story knowing what's happening. You know, hmm. knowing the the basic premise. You know, I wonder. You know, you you sort of you wish you could be surprised. You know, reading some of these mm-hmm. older stories, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you w- you wish you could have had you wish you could have that experience. And then again, you wonder how many people reading it the first time had that experience because of previews mm-hmm. and reviews. And you know, you wonder how much of this really is a secret, or really even was a secret at the time. You know, really was a shocking revelation, or how much had been yeah. pre-announced, pre-prepped, pre. So, so uh, speaking of. Uh- surprise revelations and knowing the twist. I already knew the twist, but because I didn't know who Jack Monroe was, Jack Monroe shows up and he looks like Sebastian Stan (laughs) because Jack Monroe looks like Bucky Barnes. Right. So I was like, oh, wait, so Bucky's away from his handlers the first time we meet him? That's weird. And then like a page later, he has both of his hands. I'm like, yo, who is this guy? And (laughs) thus the story progresses. Yeah. Yeah, it's my first introduction to the Winter Soldier. I didn't know it was Bucky, but that's because it was in the Marvel Ultimate Alliance video game that didn't spoil that part oh, of the nice. story. Oh, nice. Good. Because the game came out before this was released. Good for them. So, and that says a lot that Marvel knew, no, mm-hmm. Bucky is going to be big. They put the Winter Soldier in the game and made sure Akron right. put the Winter Soldier in the game. But reading it, you could tell that, or playing the game, you could tell that the people who are making the game, the only information they were given is that uh, Captain America and the Winter Soldier have a history, <laughs> but you don't get to know what that is. Right. Nice. So you, the conversation fits the emotional undertones with absolutely no useful details whatsoever. <laughs> awesome. And Bucky is huge. Tumblr loves him as a resident of Tumblr. I love him. As our 20-something correspondent. Yeah. As the internet correspondent uh, of the, the fandom association of uh, James Buchanan Barnes. Yeah. It's it's near Benedict Cumberbatch levels of love for Bucky Barnes. Okay, so how does that put him relative to Tom Hiddleston? I, I would say right there between Hiddleston and uh, Cumberbatch. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yes, from what I understand, Sebastian Stan is dreamy. I don't know that from firsthand experience. That's what I'm told. <laughs> okay. It That's entirely possible. I, I, will, I will take the words of an expert on that. <laughs> So, right. So actually, I, I think from here, the next step is to get into the portion of the podcast that I've so blatantly stolen from Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, which should be partway through the fourth season of Star Trek Next Generation right now. You should all be listening to it if you have any interest in Star Trek or even just analyzing TV and movies in general. They're doing great work. But this is the part where we ask ourselves, are there any messages, morals, and meanings and things we can take away from this comic aside from pure entertainment? And I believe there are. But I believe that, you know, Emily has already alluded to them and can go through them in much more 
detail and better quality than I can, so I will open the floor to her. All right. Well, let's just take the overall motif is agency and I guess mental competence, because even for Steve, sort of some of the way that the the retcon of history is played out in the story is that Steve himself is doubting his memories. And he's having memories that he doesn't recognize possibly being implanted by the cosmic cube. So he's questioning his own memories of events and holding on to what he remembers of Bucky, even though he's realizing that might not be correct. Then, of course, you've got Bucky, who has been, one, physically brain damaged, and then horrifically experimented on and brainwashed, and trying to determine whether any of his core personality has survived and whether or not he can be held responsible for his actions. There was actually an event uh, that recently took place. I heard about this from the Arkham Sessions podcast. I believe it was at San Diego Comic Fest this year in 2016, where a group of cosplayers got together and staged a mock trial, which was the People versus James Buchanan Barnes, and Bucky was put on trial. The lawyers were actual law students who came and prosecuted and defended the Winter Soldier for his actions, as seen in the movie and the comic book. They actually used issue 11 as primary evidence, because they were like, here are the printed reports of Here's what was the done. Here is the documentation, exhibit A. The jury was selected from the group that came to see the quote unquote panel, the event, and a selection of psychologists were actually brought on as expert witnesses to talk about this. And I think that that is so, so super, super cool. I need to see if there's a video record of this somewhere, <laughs> but that, that, the themes that are brought up in this are strong enough that psychologists and law students and all of these people can come in and dig into this. I mean, to, to, to some extent, again, within the story, that, that's part of the debate from the sort of military side is, is he an enemy combatant? If he shows up, mm-hmm. do we kill him? I mean, they're in mm-hmm. essence weighing that same question. Yeah. Right. Is he responsible for his actions? Can he be cured, changed, healed? Uh, rehabilitated. And that's um, actually one of my uh, favorite debates that it, it just like as a little soundbite that people will bring up is James Buchanan Barnes is not an enemy combatant. He is not an enemy of the American people. He is the longest serving prisoner of war. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's really like horrific concept of being trapped inside your own mind is brought up several times. And we even get it as the the final panel where Bucky has possibly escaped his conditioning, escaped from the prison that was his own mind for the last 50 years, and might be on his way towards healing. And in the very last panel, we realize that Lutkin and the Red Skull are trapped in Lutkin's mind together like rats in a cage. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a lot of stuff that's done in the art that for the war flashbacks, there was a very Walking Dead feel to me. And in a lot of ways, this story almost plays out as a zombie uh, as a zombie flick that does the winter soldier count as a monster like is he a person mm-hmm. you know if he if he has no continuing personality or memories does he count as a human being or does he need to be put down like a rabid dog uh, and there's there's some flashbacks to nazi experimentation that was done on prisoners of war then being released back to their side with explosives and you get to see bucky's feeling to this and he's just sick to his stomach and disgusted and horrified by this vile thing that's happened and steve has to think to himself you know if bucky could tell me what he wanted he already did that he would never want this to happen Mm -hmm. to him for his own good maybe maybe i should put him down it's a really (laughs) serious intense story and in later issues we get to see more of bucky's rehabilitation more of his coping in the wake of having his memories returned by the cosmic cube. But at the end of this, it, at the end of this story, you don't get a solid answer of whether or not the programming is still there, whether or not Bucky wants to live. This is a brilliant, difficult character piece that doesn't actually give very many answers. And that's sort of for the best. Mm-hmm. Even beyond those where you question how much agency they have of their own. So your Jackman Rose, your Bucky's, a lot of this is happening through Nick Fury, who's a common guest character in Captain America, but when he's showing up as a guest character in particular, more so than his own, a lot of what he does comes down to agency as well. 
Nick Fury's decisions are about controlling mm. what agencies others have, mm. controlling the information, controlling the choices. He's sending people on missions that will keep him distracted while others are on other missions. He's trying to control the information they have to deny them agency to make decisions that he doesn't want them to make. And that, you know, so even though they are making their own choices, if they're, you know, for example, Sharon Carter here, she's the only sort of lack of agency that she has here might be a little bit of emotional control difficulties because her love interest died in the Philadelphia bombing. But most of the times that she's making decisions she wouldn't make if fully informed is because Nick Fury has deliberately denied her information right. that yeah. she would have. Mm -hmm. That's one of the things that is a Nick Fury characteristic from yeah. the start. So I think it was a very nice choice for Brubaker to involve Nick Fury so heavily in this, not just because he's the intelligence guy, but because he's the flip side of that agency coin, where he's overstepping his agency in terms of what others are doing. Th thematically, it made sense. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Interesting. In, in, in terms of other sort of deeper meanings or themes, one's just silly. You know, in comics, dead is not necessarily dead. But a more serious one, you know, friendship is forever. And you know, Cap is still affected. 70 years later, by his, his friendship with Bucky. Mm -hmm. And when he returns, mm -hmm. he, you know, there's still that deep, deep bond, that companionship, the camaraderie. Yeah, and that mm -hmm. is a, a sort of a character theme throughout the whole thing, is just how utterly, cripplingly alone Steve Rogers is mm -hmm. for this entire story, because he had some companionship in Sharon, and I really, really like that relationship. I, I like Sharon. I like a, a, mm -hmm. Agent, Agent 13. 13. Yeah, I thought that was a great... By the time I was rereading this for this episode, I had seen the movie, but forgotten that she was in it. Mm -hmm. So it was a, it's a, re a real pleasant surprise. Oh, yeah. Agent 13. This is awesome. Yeah. But Sharon's there to sort of attempt to give him some emotional support, friendship, companionship. But... In a lot of ways, she just doesn't understand him. I think in the first issue, yeah. she says, I thought I used to know how to talk to him. And I've just, I, I can't to communicate me, with him and, anymore. And, and to me, may, may, maybe it's because we see her working with Fury so much. It's almost as if liaising with Steve is an assignment for her. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's an, I, I believe they're friends, but there is something <laughs> almost official and professional yeah. about their relationship as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. At the end of the tragic issue 11, we actually get a flashback to Bucky and Steve like going to the movies together and trying to relax and Bucky sort of poking him about, man, you've got to you've got to relax. We're on shore leave and you're bringing the war home with us. Just, you know, calm down. It's fine. Take a day off. And Steve makes some sort of like, oh, yeah, whatever. Little like brush off <laughs> comment. And Bucky laughs and says, some days I think, Steve, if you didn't have me, there wouldn't be anyone who understood you. And then it just cuts back to Steve in the modern day in his apartment, totally alone with the file. Mm -hmm. Well, they are both ultimately a creation of the U.S. military, mm -hmm. right? And we go back to their origin stories. I mean, you talked about earlier how a lot of people find that Captain America is bland. I believe what I heard from the writers of the Captain America Winter Soldier film on the Nerdist Writers Panel podcast is that he's difficult to write because it's hard to come up with a story arc for him. Mm -hmm. right. right. Cap's origin story is that mentally, he's already at the finish line. And then he just went through the process that let his body catch up. Whereas as we hear point. here and learn for the first time, Bucky wasn't just this sidekick, right? You go back through the original ones. He is really a mascot more than anything else. Yeah. Yeah, Brubaker was the one that added the element saying, okay, there's no way the military even in World War II would have sent a teen sidekick out as a mascot into this war zone. Why is he really there? And he's the one that added the, the step where, no, he was a, basically a war orphan who was hanging out in the garrison. And they trained him to be the assassin no one expected. So, you know, there could be some limitations in his agency there. Mm -hmm. The Russians figured out a new way to point that weapon, but he's a living weapon because of what the U.S. military did to him during World War II. Yeah. Mm. So how much agency did he have even before the Russians pulled him out of the ice? <laughs> yeah. Mm. And yeah, that, that is one thing that, yeah, Cap and Bucky, I think that's why they show that strong bond. They've got that past experience that nobody else would share. Exactly. So... So if we had nothing more in deeper meanings, then we might as well take a look at why we feel it landed at this point in the countdown. All right. Okay. We usually look at three elements. We've got entertainment value. We've got the significance to continuity. And we've got the messages and morals and the deeper meanings that can force you to think about things. I'd say the reason that this showed up as high as it did is because all three are there. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. This is my fifth appearance 
on the on the show, and I've liked all four of the prior entries in the tournament that I've talked about, but this is far and away the best. Definitely deserves to be higher than th- those other ones that I've that I've talked about as much as I've liked those. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you know, uh, Blaine, we've talked a couple of times about you know wondering where this book or this uh, this run might land if they revoted five or ten years later. You know, would something mm-hmm. you know curious to see what would float up the list, what would float down the list, what would disappear from the list. But I think this is going to hang around for a while, partly, to be honest, because of the movie. I mean, it certainly helps. <laughs> it has that, that, uh, that, that touchstone. Yeah, it's part of the legacy yeah, of the story. Exactly. So, you know, and I, so I, I don't mean that as a negative, but certainly mm-hmm. part, of, part of the legacy of the, of, the comics, of the excellent comic series is a really good movie. And that mm-hmm. I think both of those are gonna, going to sort of stick around uh, positively mm-hmm. in the public's memory. So. Again, partly because of the movie, but I'll be honest, I think it's going to stick pretty high on a list because it's really, really good. I think mm-hmm. it probably got about a five-point bump from the movie. Mm-hmm. Should it have been in single digits? Maybe not, but 13 would have been pretty appropriate. <laughs> yeah, I mean, l- looking up higher on the list, to be honest, it's, it's, it's hard to place it much higher than this. Yeah. And there are some classic, <laughs> excellent, uber-popular stories coming up on the countdown. So stay tuned. But I don't see it falling much further uh, either. Yeah, even looking at the, the two stories that come immediately before it, you give enough time, I believe Amazing Fantasy 15 will probably come up above this. Sure. Mm-hmm. Sure. Oh, yeah. Which was last week's. But I do firmly believe that this belongs higher on the list than Secret Wars. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I think that to date, and I, maybe Civil War will actually manage to change this. Who knows? But- I think that to date, Captain America, the Winter Soldier, is the best of the Marvel movies. And in <laughs> large part, it is because it is such a close adaptation of this story. Mm-hmm. That it, it sticks very close to the themes, the characters, and the conflicts that make this such an enduring, great story. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. to some extent, a few minutes ago, I was probably coming across as saying that the because the movie was popular, that's why this got voted this highly, but I think there's a circular aspect to that. The reason the movie was so good is because it stayed pretty close to this story in terms of, you know, mm-hmm. what you do from adapting from one media to another. You know, storylines yeah. are kicked out, you know, things are rearranged Some things and, are and all of that. But <laughs> fundamentally they're telling yeah. very similar stories. And it's a really strong story being told in, in, in different formats. Yeah. I, I believe if you were you know, the worst parent in history, had a child, raised them in a complete vacuum, exposed them only to Marvel Comics published in the first 75 years, that child would put this story on the list. <laughs> no exposure to the movies, TV shows, right, nothing. Right, yeah. right. Agreed. But yeah, if you were to view it in isolation, as I said, the all it's going to boil down to, if we were to recreate this list or a top 100 list in 25 years' time, is which position does it sit in? Right. Right. Agreed. Not does it belong on the list, but mm-hmm. how far is it going to move? And I'd say, you know, for the foreseeable future, it wouldn't move much. No. I think this will probably always be in the top 20. It could be, yeah. It's really strong. Yeah. It's, if anything, I would look forward to the unpublished stories that are able to knock it out of the top 20. Exactly. Right, right. Because that is going to be stiff competition. <laughs> okay. So I think from here, we'll uh, thank you guys for joining us. And why don't you... Give people a rundown for where they can hear your other stuff. Uh, mostly, we're available at uh, rel- the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. And that's where Emily and me, our joint show, The Short Box Showcase is, as well as my solo show, The Quarter Bin Podcast, in various and sundry other things get run through that, uh, that feed as well. We also recently started a, a side project called Dorkness to Light, dorknesstolight.blogspot.com, where we occasionally uh, release episodes that look at sort of the spiritual, religious uh, context of some of our favorite comics and, and pop culture stories. Okay. All right. So from there, all we have left is to let the people who are reading along at home know that next week we are dealing with Marvels. Now, Marvel's number one is what officially made the top 75 list, but next week's co-host and I 
sat down and we talked about it and we suspect this may be something like the ultimate situation where ultimates issue one showed up when they really meant ultimates volume one just looking at the context so next week we're not just dealing with the first issue of marvels we're going to be looking at the full four issue miniseries and that's been reprinted in hardcover and trade paperback forms multiple times including anniversary editions and it's also been released through marvel digital unlimited and comiXology so please join us for that next week while you're at it don't forget to rate this and any of the shows you listen to on iTunes and on Stitcher, it really does help the shows get noticed. Feel free to share direct links to the episodes with friends who you feel may enjoy them, and to join our Facebook discussion forum, where we discuss this and all the other stories that came out. And finally, thank you for listening. This is an imaginary podcast, which may never have happened. The Shortbox Showcase. But then again may have. About a father and daughter... I'm Professor Allen. And I'm Emily. Who came from Ohio and talked about comics. Walking Dead. Tintin. Black Lightning. White Tiger. It tells of their rise to glory, when the great guests were yet to be booked. Let's put it this way, Shogun Warriors wasn't going to win any Eisners. And the great feats of editing not yet performed. This is Ultra 7, this is Ultraman Jack, and this is Ultraman Taro, and this is Ultraman Leo, and this is Ultra- Of how they spoke at length. Continuity is really the brainchild of nitpicking nerds the world over. But to be fair, the best kind of confession is the Force Confession. And reviewed in brief tales that explore creatively the bounds of a given character's history. Red Sun is wonderful with a very strange ending. Of brilliant creators before their fall from grace. This is the era where Miller is at the height of his creative and artistic powers. And the ability of strong writing encapsulate and transcend its time. Flash of Two Earths by Gardner Fox. This is an imaginary podcast. Aren't they all? Shortbox Showcase is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Check us out on the web at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search in iTunes for Relatively Geeky or Shortbox Showcase. And remember... We're not experts. We're just family.